morning, if you would get a Bible, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to begin this part of our worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we'll get started there. Good to see you this morning, and it's good for me to be home. Uh, Zach and I were in Florida all week. It is warm there. It was in the 80s and sunny, and it was like it was summer, and then we came back here. And it is not summer here. Uh, So uh, the other thing that I learned this week is that we should all really appreciate Bailey more and more. Uh, I spent all week with Zach. (laughs) No, I enjoyed being with him. And uh, I do appreciate Bailey, but not just for that. It is our Q&A morning. So uh, what we're going to do this morning, for those who are not familiar with what we do, the second Sunday morning, it's usually the second Sunday morning of each month, uh, we gather at this time and I'll answer questions that you've submitted to me. And uh, this is not something where we're going to go back and forth, but questions that you've given me ahead of time so I have some time to prepare a response for them. So I always want to encourage everybody to... Give me questions that you think would be worthwhile in this slot and helpful or things that you're confused or concerned or have questions about uh, that you think would benefit others. As always, I reserve veto power. uh, So certain questions, if I decide for whatever reason are not going to benefit us, um, that might not show up. But I appreciate your questions, and I'm going to do my best to answer them. So uh, the first question this morning is, How do we know that the Holy Spirit is in us? And in order to get some context on that question, we have to understand some of what the New Testament teaches about the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to be able to do that exhaustively this morning. I have three questions, not just this one. Uh, But just to give you a sense of that, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here and verse 18. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for, though you, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So our bodies, he says, are, as Christians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us. And in fact, the way he phrases it in verse 19, he says, or do you not know? In other words, the Holy Spirit is in us, and you should know it. The question asks, Though this question, how exactly do we get that knowledge and assurance that the Holy Spirit is in us? We are intended to know this, and it is important that we know that the Holy Spirit is in us. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, you'll see why this is so important. As Paul talks about the indwelling of the Spirit here in Romans 8, we're going to just read uh, some smatterings of verses through the chapter here. Uh, Romans 8 and verse 9. Romans 8 and verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Uh, Verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So you have an extremely important idea, especially verses 9 and 11, 
In verse 9, it says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Verse 11 says, it is the spirit that will raise our mortal bodies from the dead. So we want the spirit to be dwelling in us. And then in verse 16, uh, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So what we're talking about here is the idea of the confirming aspect of the Holy Spirit giving us confirmation that we belong to God and then offering promises in the future as a result of the relationship and the indwelling. There are a number of other passages. I just put a few on the board here. Uh, It's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit as a guarantee. That idea of a guarantee is repeated here, 2 Corinthians 5.5. He has prepared us for this very thing as God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. The idea is you know that you belong to him now and it's sort of a down payment or a promise of what's to come that there's more to come, and we know that we're going to receive what's more to come because we have the Spirit now. The question is also a little bit complicated because of the New Testament's teaching about spiritual gifts and apostolic gifts in New Testament times. And so most of the time, I think there might be a couple of exceptions, but I'll just say generally most of the time when these passages talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, I don't believe it's a reference necessarily to those gifts. I believe it's a reference just to the Holy Spirit indwelling Christians, particularly, uh, he says in Acts 5, those who obey God. And the reason for that indwelling that we're talking about, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, is not the revealing of God's word to us. That is what the function of those gifts was, was for those gifts to be used to prophesy or to inspire men to write or to inspire men to preach in other languages and things like that. The the purpose of this indwelling appears to be to confirm that we belong to Jesus. That's one. Confirm to us, bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And two, to transform us to be more like him. The spirit works in us to change us so that we become different people. We'll talk about that more in just a second. So the question then is, well, how do we know that that's going on? I want to say first that the way New Testament Christians describe the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is such that indwelling is never described as a feeling. Now that's important because that is what most of the religious world teaches, that the Holy Spirit's indwelling is a feeling. But that doesn't come from Scripture. Now I stand to be corrected on that. If there are passages that say that, I have not found them. Uh, And if there are ways that New Testament writers or Christians describe the Holy Spirit and His presence as a feeling, I'd be happy to learn that. But as far as my studies have taken me, I don't see that description. And that's very different from what you hear today, uh, where people will say something like, I felt a warm sensation, uh, I felt a certain thing, and I just knew that God accepted me. I felt loved, or that kind of thing. And of course, you see the problem with that. If the New Testament writers never describe it that way, then what we have is the question, well, is that really God or is that just my feelings? And we all have lots of different feelings. Some of those are are biological and physical. Some of those have to do with our own emotions. And those feelings are up and down and change all the time. And it would be a very frightening thing to base our spiritual fate on something that just could be my feelings. So I don't see that. And that, I think, is an important way we have to talk about this question. You also have just get things a little more complicated, if we're not already complicated enough, that, that the New, in the New Testament, it does describe the Holy Spirit speaking to people. Uh, this is Acts 10. Uh, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, 
Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Or you also have Acts 16 and verse 7, where it talks about Paul and his travels. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. All right, so you have the Spirit spoken of in these texts as if he is speaking directly, but it is, in, in my view, very much the same as if an angel says something. It's something that has clear speech. Okay, so you even have, here's the message. Three men are looking for you. I have sent them. Go with them. Uh, it is not something that's just like, well, Peter suddenly felt a certain thing, and so he decided to do this. It was instead something spoke to Peter or did not allow Paul to do it. So, I feel like I've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, but we haven't answered the question yet, right? You guys know my Q&A style. I like to dance around the question for a while, and then uh, we finally get to it. All right, so uh, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. I, I think this needs to be said, that the Holy Spirit is only going to indwell people who obey Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit's indwelling is contingent on our obedience. So if we're going to ask the question, how do I know? If I'm answering that question for someone, my first question is going to be, tell me about your conversion. Tell me about whether you are a Christian. And I want to talk to them about that. I want to compare what they say has happened to them to what the New Testament pattern is for how people become Christians. Okay, because that is part of the New Testament's witness about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as Peter says, is given to those who obey him. God has given his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So I have to be obedient in a primary sense in order to have the relationship, the basis on which the Holy Spirit's going to indwell me. But I don't really think that's the essence of the heart of the question. Uh, the heart of the question appears to me is, how do I as a Christian know that the Spirit is in me if I can't feel him? So Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the Spirit, as He works within us, changing us, transforming us, we see the Spirit by His effects by his fruit. The fruit of the Spirit indicate that the Spirit is in us and that we're following after the Spirit. Now, that's important because that means we're not saved by our love and joy and peace, but if we are saved, love and joy and peace are going to follow. They must follow or else we have to ask the question, who are we following? We have to ask the question, are we walking in the Spirit or are we walking after the flesh? And the way those things are borne out in this text is either we have the works of the flesh, verse 19 to 21, or we have the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22 to 23. It's one or the other. And so we indicate by our lives who is leading us and who is living in us. So I, I think this is important to say that these attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, these attributes are a better barometer of our relationship with God than things that may be more objective for us, like the amount of Bible knowledge that we have or the things that we don't do. 
Don't misunderstand that. Those things are important. It's important to have Bible knowledge. It's important to not do certain things. But it seems to me that we could be Christians for decades and decades and not have any more passion or spiritual depth, not be any kinder, not have any more interest in God and His will. And if we are that way, we'd be really hard-pressed to say the Spirit's in us because the Spirit bears certain fruit. So it appears to me that this is the marker the New Testament gives us for how we know the Spirit is in us. Jesus also says this about the Spirit. This is about the spiritual birth he talks about to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, this is, in my view, this is a formative passage in understanding the Holy Spirit. Because what this describes is the wind that you cannot diagram. You cannot say, oh, there's the wind, there it is, there it is. And you can't really tell how the wind's going to go. You just kind of see the wind here and there. Oh, there it is. Oh, there, the wind must have done that. Okay? You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. That there are going to be some questions we have about the Spirit because He's the Spirit. And there are going to be some things that we can't diagram and flesh out because he's the Spirit. And that we have to be comfortable with that uh, level of, I don't know how you say it, agnosticism, not being certain about how the Spirit's at work. And because of that, it seems to me that we could even say that it's possible that the Holy Spirit is the agent God is using to answer some of our prayers. Have you ever wondered how does God answer prayer when you ask God, give me strength for these tasks, give me understanding, give me peace, comfort them? Do you ever wonder how God does that? You know, does God the Father, you know, does he reach down his finger? You know, does he send angels to do that? Of course, God has all the power. He could do it in any way he wanted. I believe the Holy Spirit is one of the agents God uses to do some of those things. And we're not going to be able to look at it and say, oh, Holy Spirit did that, angel did that. What we do is we say, thank you, Father, for answering my prayer. Okay? So to me, it appears that that's a healthier understanding of how the Spirit is working. But that's, this is important. Every part of whatever someone might say the Spirit is doing has to be subject to what we know has been revealed by the Spirit in Scripture. In fact, I've had this experience when you talk to uh, people who are not Christians or people who are young Christians, I've had this repeatedly. In fact, Sarah and I have had this conversation a number of times with people where someone will say, as we sit down to study, actually, I've heard God speak to me. Or I've had this vision. Or I had this dream. And I, I'll tell you, you may disagree with me, and that's okay. We can still be friends. I don't argue with them. Here's what I say. I say, I don't know about that. But I know that anything that leads you to study the Bible and to go to God's word, I'm going to say, let's go to God's word from that. So I don't know if that's good. I don't know if the dreams are true. I don't know any of that. But I know if it's going to take you to God's word, let's go to God's word. And let's focus on what we can know is true and go there. So you see my point. My point is the Holy Spirit's not going to point us away from the Holy Spirit's revelation. The Holy Spirit is going to work in concert with what he has revealed. But the way we see the work of the Spirit is when we see how 
we are growing in love and joy and peace and patience. In fact, I would go so far as to say that even if we said we had heard voices or felt feelings, even if those things were true, if we're not living a life that has the fruit of the Spirit in it, then we don't have the Spirit. And to back that up, I would use Jude 18, where he talks about those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And I would mention Jesus' statement, you will recognize them by their fruits. So at the heart of this, I know we've said a lot of things. I would just say we know the Holy Spirit is in us as we live out his fruit, as we bear his fruit in obedience to him. And that might raise some questions for us because we might begin to say, well, I know I know a lot about the Bible, but I really have a problem with self-control. I'm not very gentle. I have trouble with my faithfulness. And to me, it says, well, maybe there is work to do and a work, an area of my life to let the spirit affect as I try to submit myself to God. All right. So how do we know the spirit is in us? All right. Second question we have is, did John the Baptist doubt Jesus? Everybody ready to totally switch gears? All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Did John the Baptist doubt Jesus? All right, Matthew 11, we're going to read verses 2 down to verse 7. Matthew eleven two. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, we're in Matthew eleven three, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. He goes on to talk more about John. But the text here is odd because of what we already know about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching in the beginning before Jesus came preaching that there is one who is coming after him who is greater, who is to be the Messiah. Then Jesus comes and is baptized by him. John says about Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. This is the guy I've been talking about. So John, not only are John and Jesus related physically, But John knows Jesus, and he clearly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. He seems to know a lot, the one who's coming after, who is greater than him. So how is John now saying, verse 3, are you the coming one, or shall we look for another? What happened here? What changed from what happened when John first came to where John is now? John is in prison, it says in verse 2, because he criticized Herod's marriage. And so he hears about what Jesus is doing, particularly the crowds Jesus is drawing, and he sends his disciples to ask him that. So the question is, did John the Baptist doubt Jesus? The question is, what's the explanation of what's happening here? And my understanding is that there are basically two theories. Uh, One theory is that uh, John is asking this question for the benefit of his disciples. We'll call that the disciple theory. And the other is that John asked these questions for himself because he had begun to doubt Jesus. We'll call that the doubt theory. All right, so let's talk about the disciple theory. So verse 2 says, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And then in verse 7, As they, the disciples, went away. Jesus answers the disciples of John by telling them 
Verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. They become witnesses to Jesus' works, and they are to go report back to John. So according to this theory, Jesus wants them to become witnesses, and it's not John who needs reinforcement, but John's disciples, who John hopes will see Jesus and come to faith in Jesus. I'm not sure if the idea is that they'll become Jesus' disciples and leave John alone, or if just later on uh, they'll come to faith in Jesus. But the idea is this is not for John's benefit, but for the disciples' benefit. So uh, pluses of this theory, uh, this helps reconcile what we talked about earlier, that John always knew who Jesus was. And it would be odd for John to suddenly change, I, I know who Jesus is, and then say, are you the coming one? Uh, minuses of this theory is mainly, and this is my concern about it, it's reading a lot into the text. The text doesn't say anything about that, about John not really saying this for himself, but saying this for his disciples. Everything in the exchange is directed at John. So verse 4, Jesus said, go and tell John. Verse 2, when John heard, he sent word by his disciples. Uh, So then when you get done with the story, it doesn't appear that they come to faith in Jesus. They just do what they're told. They go to Jesus, and then they go back and report. Uh, So those are some of the minuses of the disciple theory. Now, the other theory is the idea of doubt, which is what's in the question here. Uh, So in that theory, John has been doing God's work. He's been preaching the way he should, and then he stands up to Herod about his marriage, and now he is thrown into prison. He hears about Jesus, and he asks this question in verse 3, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So this theory says that It could be that John is doubting whether Jesus is really fulfilling his mission the way he was supposed to. It could be that John feels like Jesus should have come and freed him from prison, maybe after a certain amount of time. But here is the crux of it. Something in the report of what Jesus was doing caused John to doubt whether he was really the coming one. Are you really the Messiah? Something about the report, because verse 2 connects it. Verse 2 says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, then he asked this question. Something about what Jesus was doing concerned John. And so when John sends his disciples, Jesus reminds him of what he is doing. Verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So he says, John, I really am doing messianic works. These are the things that in Isaiah and in the messianic passages are descriptions of blessings coming from God in the time of the Messiah, things like the blind seeing and uh, the lepers being cleansed, all those things, the the captive set free. And he's saying, tell him what you're seeing, because what you're seeing are the signs of the coming one. There is also, in verse 6, a statement, blessed is the one who is not offended by me which in this theory is a warning to John about his response to Jesus. You're growing offended at me, and be careful about that because that's also part of the problem uh, in the messianic understanding is when we don't accept the Messiah, it creates an issue, uh, of course, with God. So pluses of the doubt theory, uh, it's more consistent with the tone of the text. It's a straightforward reading of the text. Uh, It's understandable that John might doubt, given the circumstances he was in, being in prison. Uh, And it humanizes John. It makes John where he is not, you know, if you read the earlier accounts of John, John is very much 
sort of uh, above everybody else. You know, he sees everything clearly. He has no problem giving up the, the uh, you know, I must decrease, he must increase, that idea. Uh, so this would say, well, John also had feet of clay. He had trouble in this moment. Minuses of the doubt theory, though. It doesn't explain why John would doubt, what expectations John had that would make Jesus uh, seem like maybe he wasn't the real Messiah. And it makes John look uncertain might even blunt the earlier endorsement he makes. If he makes that endorsement and then he kind of is not sure later on, it kind of makes the endorsement weak. So there's your two theories. Do you want to know what I think? Probably. I guess I have to tell you what I think because I'm doing the Q&A. I think John doubted, and I think Jesus reassured him, and then I think he praised him. That's why I started to read verse 7. And if you keep reading down through that text, Jesus has a lot of good things to say about John. But I don't think they're things that are based on the fact that John never had any trouble. I think they're things based on the the work John has done and uh, that John deserves to be honored. And particularly given the fact that John is going to die in prison. Uh, John is not ever going to escape this. And so even though the Messiah is coming and is here, uh, it's going to mean that John's still going to die in this, this awful way. And so Jesus praising him just shows to me the values in the kingdom that you can be, as he says... Very, very influential and important. No one born among women is greater than John the Baptist. And yet, yet God can allow things to happen like this uh, that seem unfair in our eyes. Uh, so if that is the case, I think it's important for us to remember that anyone can go through periods of doubt. And several Bible characters do. But that we have to be willing to work through those doubts. One of the things about doubt that really concerns me is that when we have times of doubt, we pull away from other people. We don't want to ask questions of the people who can really help us. And instead, we tend to wallow in our doubts instead of seeking out answers to try to figure out, how can I resolve this? I'm impressed by the fact that if John is doubting here, he doesn't just doubt alone. He sends word, says, I need help. And Jesus gives him some confirmation and reassurance. So that's what I think happens with that. I do think... John doubts Jesus. All right. I got another question. And I've got five minutes. And there's no way I'm going to be able to answer this question in five minutes. So I think that I'm just going to dismiss us for now, and uh, we'll save that question. Do you want to see the question so you know what's coming next month? Okay. We'll have to wait. Now, next month is going to be a little different because we're the second Sunday next month is right after our Bible workshop, and Chris Emerson is going to be here. He's going to be preaching. I don't think he's going to teach my Q&A. So uh, we'll probably have to wait until the third Sunday next month. So it'll be five weeks before you hear the answer to this awesome question. Uh, Why do we pray in Jesus' name, and is it necessary? That's what we're going to talk about, but not today. All right, so we'll be dismissed for our classes. Thanks for your attention.